you would, go ahead and turn with me to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. We'll we'll be picking up our study where Tyler left off reading there. Verse 13 of chapter 6 of Ezra. So following Darius's decree that we just read of a moment ago. May the Lord bless the reading of his authoritative and life-transforming word. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shathar, Bazanai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree or by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in the divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. And so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God the God of Israel. Well, over the years, Megan and I have every so often just stopped and looked back over our lives. You know, whether it meant looking back over the last year and just looking at things that have happened or challenges we had faced or blessings that we had seen. So we would do that, or even over the last several years. And so often, when we would just stop and do this, we would stop and marvel at the Lord and in all that the Lord had done. Whether it was looking back and recounting all the ways that God had answered prayer in just incredible ways, in ways that we weren't expecting, even in with not just big ways, but small ways, ways that were just his kindness on display, like he didn't have to do that, but then he did. And looking back on that or how the Lord had sanctified us and grown us, that the man I was three years ago, four years ago, five years ago is not the same man that's standing here now. That by his grace, I'm different. Or even how... You know, we went from a family of just Megan and me to a house that is now filled with five very energetic children. In other words, certainly, if you're thinking, well, that just seems really great. Well, there were certainly challenges. There were very serious trials, even heartaches over the years. Even many heartaches and ups and downs. But we just, as
as we looked out over all those years, we just marvel at all that the Lord has done. Well, as we come to this chapter, since God called the people back to Jerusalem out of exile, they too had reason to look back and to marvel at all that the Lord had done. And we know, right, there were bumps and there were bruises along the way for the Israelites. And not just like things that they happened to come upon, but things that they did. Sin they were walking in. But specifically, even within the book of Ezra here, we've seen their ship even went off course for a time, didn't it? You know, after being discouraged and disheartened by opposition, which is what they were, as we saw in chapter 4, right? They were afraid. And they stopped the work that God had called them to do. And yet, as we saw last time with chapter 5, now by God's merciful word, their ship has turned back and has made a serious course correction And the work of rebuilding the temple of the Lord has now been renewed. Yet, last week as we ended chapter 5, we ended it leaving us wondering, so what happened, right? (laughs) I mean, it was not the end of the story with chapter 5. You know, what came of everything that we read in chapter 5. You know, they started rebuilding the temple, which was good. But then we saw some of the Persian inspectors, they came. So Tatanai and the others that were mentioned there. And they asked the Israelites, you know, who authorized you to do this? To rebuild the temple. And so the inspectors, they wrote a letter to King Darius to find out, you know, what they were to do. What do they need to do here? Either they, do they need to stop the work of the Israelites and what they're doing, or should they just let the work continue? So that's where we left off in chapter 5. The question was not answered. Well, here in chapter 6, then, we have the answer, and we have... Darius's answer, and we we turn to see many things here, but most certainly we turn to see the deliverance of the Lord. The deliverance of the Lord. So Darius, he takes up Tatanai's inquiry, and he takes it up with gusto, with a question hovering over all of this as the people of Israel brought up in chapter 5, did King Cyrus, the first Persian king, really authorize this work or not? So rather immediately, as we go into chapter 6, we find out, right? We find the answer to this when a decree was found. A decree was found. So Darius, he calls for a search of the Persian filing cabinets, if you will. They didn't have filing cabinets back then. So you're like, wow, they had some pretty modern technology or things. Well, no, they didn't have filing cabinets, but let's just say they looked in their filing cabinets and they found Cyrus's decree. And it was found in Ecbatana, which was the capital of the Median Empire. And it makes total sense just noticing these things as you go along, that this is very, very historical, that these places and things really existed. And it makes sense that they would find it there because that's where Cyrus and other Persian kings often would go to spend their summers. And so they found it there in Ekbaktana. Now, as we're reading all this, though, and as we're hearing all this, and these things being written, there's a bit of a tension going on here in this passage. So in chapter 4, now if you remember chapter 4, which I imagine many of you do, 
the complexities of that chapter, right? When in the middle of the chapter, Ezra just stops everything and he doesn't flash back, he flashes forward, right? And he takes us on a bit of a journey to see what these things that happened in the future and this future opposition that would come upon the people of Israel from King Ahasuerus and King Artaxerxes. Well, if you remember, Artaxerxes made a similar search of the archives or the filing cabinets, and it did not turn out well for the people. The work of rebuilding the city and its walls, it was commanded to stop, right? And so that's a bit of the tension going on here. As we come to this chapter, as we're reading of very similar things, the question hovering over this is what's going to happen here? Will Darius be like Artaxerxes? And if not, why not? So in finding this decree, the Israelites' words were found to be true, and it provided a final word on the matter. And as we're reading all this, even Darius' response and how he gives a decree here in a moment, in all this, the favor of God is absolutely clear. And Ezra wants you to see that. As we read back in chapter 5, it's true here also in chapter 5, verse 5. What did it say there? You remember? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. That's still going on and should still be going on in our minds and in our hearts as we go right into chapter 6. If you know in your Bibles, chapters and verses did not and were not always there, which is very helpful as you study your Bible and begin thinking through it in its context. And so the favor of God is absolutely evident here. And so no, Darius would not be like Artaxerxes for a reason. God. And so after the decree was found, a decree is given in verses 6 through 12. And so Darius arises for Israel's good and he tells the inspectors, keep away. (laughs) Or literally, keep away from there. And so he decrees to them, let them be. The temple must be rebuilt And not only that, but it must be paid for in full. And any supplies they need, give them those as well. You see the favor of God just kind of everywhere here? And along with that, which we'll come back to in a moment, but along with that, Darius even asked them to pray for him and his sons as well. In verse 10. Now, in case anyone might come along and think, you know what? I'm not too fond of Darius's edict. I'm not too fond of the people there, the people of Israel and their temple they've got going on. I don't like how they're worshiping God and saying he's the only God that exists. You know, I think I'll, I'll you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to go and alter Darius's edict. Or you know what? Let's just bring down the temple. Well, Darius has an answer to that, doesn't he? And so he essentially says, again, if you put it in modern terms, if you do that, I'm going to lay the smack down on you. That's what he's saying. (laughs) And not just that, but God is too. And so he decrees that a beam would be taken out of their house. And as was the Persians' practice, they would sharpen this beam, right? 
and then it'd be placed in the ground and it would be inserted just under the chest right here. Nice and where it's all comfortable, right? And they would be pierced through, impaled, right? And they would be left there to die hanging on this piece of wood, on this beam. And so, again, we see the favor of God streaming through and over all of this. God's eye was indeed on them. And so because of his decree, and you can take that in multiple ways if you want, his decree, we see the work is finished. And so it says in verse 14, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. Behind it all, why it ultimately comes about is God. By the decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And as you see all those names, you're not thinking, well, they did that. You're thinking, wow, look what God did through each and every single one of them. You're probably like, why is Artaxerxes mentioned here? I mean, he reigned after Darius. Well, he's being mentioned because we just read chapter 4. And because even up to him in his reign, the point is behind all of that and the accomplishing of all of these things is and was God. God's work would not be stopped. Now, mindful of how we got here to chapter 6 with the opposition of chapter 4 and the corrections of chapter 5, we need to be something of what they were here. And what was that? Well, you and I are to be all in. All in. We're to trust the Lord until it is done. We are to trust the Lord and keep on going, keep on working, keep on serving until he takes us home in glory. Faith means just that. All in. We're not to be like Darius here. Now, what do I mean by that? I told you we would come back to what I said before. So Darius, he was not a worshiper of God. There was a reason that he asked the people of Israel to pray for him and his sons in verse 10. It wasn't because he was a convert. So what was he doing? He was hedging his bets. He was protecting himself from the possibility in his mind that maybe, just maybe, he could anger the God of Israel or any other God among the nations. This was something he did often. Would you pray for me? (laughs) Baal, oh, pray for me, please. You know, and as it goes on, all the gods, gods of the nations... Just in case, he's hedging his bets. And as we see him do that, we need to consider, if we're looking at the Christian faith the same way as he perhaps was looking at all the other gods of the nations. I believe, I'll follow Jesus and all, Just in case. (laughs) Just in case, I'll go to church, I'll hear the preaching, that maybe I'll have that, you know, get a hell free card with me, that just in case, I'll be fine 
when it happens, when I die. I'll go to church and everything just in case, but then we add some other things too, don't we? So long as this doesn't happen, right? I'll turn my life around and everything, and I'll follow Christ, but if it, be- if it begins getting hard, or maybe even a new shiny thing comes along, man, I'm all out. <laughs> Which we have seen in the church today. A just-in-case sort of Christianity when they saw something different, something shiny, another idol, another god they could worship, they went and they bowed down and pursued it with all their heart. You know, honestly, before I became a Christian, I was doing that too. I used to hedge my bets also. I wore a cross around my neck. You know, I had, I had that maybe. You know, you saw me walk on the street. You would see a cross on me. Probably even a cross ring as well. Ichthus on there. You know, Jesus written on it. I even had a Bible. And I would even every so often pick up and read the Bible. Just in case, right? I wasn't just like some of the Christians out there or people out there. They, they own a Bible, but I actually read it sometimes. Well, look at me. And as contradictions go, I even carried a rabbit's foot with me, right? Just in case. I had a just in case sort of religion. Well, we, you know, when we just sang a moment ago, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. We weren't doing that just to fill the time this morning. We weren't doing that because we're like, well, that's a pretty nice song. It really moves me. (laughs) That's not why we were singing that. We were singing it, and I pray you were singing it because you meant it. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. I am all in. This is not a just-in-case sort of thing for me. He is my life. Not a one-foot-out one foot in. But I am all in, Lord. Through the struggles, through the opposition, through the persecution, through walking it alone. I know I'm never alone because I'm following Christ who is always with me. I'm all in. That's why we sang that. And that is what God is calling us to be. And in that, and following that, being all in, trusting the Lord in opposition, in trials, in whatever comes, then it is we would see the mighty deliverance of God. The mighty deliverance of God. So from chapter 1 until now of Ezra, we have been seeing these themes What themes? Exodus. Over and over and over again. God's stirring up of Cyrus. Not hardening his heart, but stirring up his heart. His stirring up of the people of Israel. And as we see in these verses as well, what do we find? The Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so on. Exodus themes again and again. Well, who was behind the Exodus and all that happened there? Was it, was it Moses? Was it the people and how they walked really well through the wilderness? It was God. 
You know, it reminds me of Exodus chapter 14, where right before God would part the seas, Moses, he says these powerful words. He says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Well, could it be that the Lord is today saying to you and to us, in whatever you're facing, dear child, See that you can lean on me, that you can trust in me, that you can follow me until the very end. And you may not see it all now, but watch and see the salvation of the Lord. He's doing that. As we look out over the struggles of our lives. As we look out over the plight of our nation. Are we hearing Moses and his words from Exodus 14? Fear not. He's doing this as we look out over the state of the church. Again and again, throughout your life, you and I are being called to hear the Exodus theme of watch and see the salvation of the Lord. Over and over and over again. It's too hard. I can't do it. We can't make it. Our church can't do this. There's no way that can be resolved, and so on. How will God bring people to himself? How will the church turn around? How will things be revived? And so on, and so on, and so on. And again, and again, we are being called to hear, watch, and see the salvation of the Lord. And so after seeing all this, after seeing the deliverance of the Lord, we then see the people's response to this deliverance of the Lord. And what do we find them doing? We see the worship of the Lord. We see the worship of the Lord. They give God the glory. They don't lift up the elders or the prophets or the governors. There's no, for he's a jolly good fellow going on. But after the work of the Lord, they give all glory to the Lord. And so it is that we see all this that follows. They dedicate the temple with the offerings saying, Lord, It's your temple. We worship you. They celebrate Passover, which is just incredible. And just why is that so incredible? Well, Passover, it had not been celebrated since the time of King Josiah. So more than 100 years earlier. That's why it's incredible. So in modern times, it might be something akin to celebrating, and I know these aren't biblical holidays, but something akin to celebrating Christmas or Easter for, after having it not been celebrated for hundreds of years. I mean, what kind of response might you have after that? After one, hundreds of years go by, Now you do. 
So what kind of tone do you think there would be to the worship after all of that? Well, we see what kind of tone. And first we see joyful worship. Joyful worship. Verse 16, they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Verse 22, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. It was a joy-filled dedication. A joy-filled festival. Now you're probably, or maybe you're like, well, what is that? The feast of unleavened bread. I mean, what was going on there? Well, it was a feast that followed Passover. Remembering how they left Egypt and they ate bread without leaven because they had to get going, right? They had to leave in haste. So again, it's not a coincidence that we see these exodus overtones. See what God has done and was doing again. And so it says in verse 22, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. What, what's that about? Assyria, aren't we beyond that at this point? <laughs> right? Assyria, Babylon, Persia. Well, by Assyria, Ezra's not like, oops. He's trying to emphasize what he's emphasized already, even as he did with Artaxerxes. It's emphasizing God's work. From the beginning of their exile until now, God's plans, they will most certainly prevail. Those who follow His word, He will bless. And so what does He do? Joy. He puts joy in their hearts. You know, many people, and maybe it's you this morning, they come to the Lord's Day, they come to a service like this, thinking it's all just serious. It's all just serious business. No smiles, right? Maybe I smile at you, just like, nope, serious. No kindness, right? Just serious. No hope. That's what you look like. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people, if they came to our worship service, they'd be like, where is the hope here? I mean, you're saying you've got hope, right? Our hope is found in Christ alone. But yet our faces are like, in Christ alone, our hope is found. Right? Would anybody be able to come in here and say, yeah, that is where hope is found. Or even coming to a service like this and there's no grace. There's no like temperament of grace. We're all just mean to each other. A lack of grace. A lack of the gospel grace that we're called to. Well, friends, that's not to be. That's not what our worship services are to be like. Worship is not a killer of joy. And get that this morning. Who created joy? Did sin? Is that when joy entered the picture? Oh man, it, I mean, it really wasn't fun until we started sinning. I don't think so. God is the one who created joy. He's the one who created your body to smile and laugh. And to glory in these things. 
He's the one who made it that when hope rises up in your soul, you just go, yeah. Amen. God is the one who causes joy to overflow in us. He put, he made them joyful, it says. So would we treat worship then as some drab, dead, hopeless thing? Rather, may the joy of the Lord fill our hearts this morning. Joy, saints. I'm not saying be fake. I'm saying let the glories of the things of the gospel rise up in you and rejoice in the God you love. Even as we sang rejoice a moment ago. So joyful worship. And also, without contradicting joyful worship, what else do we see here? We see holy worship. So the priests and Levites led them, and they were set apart for dedication. We see that in verses 16 through 18. And they purified themselves, as we see in verse 20, making sure they undertook the worship of God according to the word of God in all holiness. Now, as we see this, we see the reality of God's holiness. And what else do we see? The reality of our unholiness. Every single one of us, you and me, we are an unholy people. And if you don't think that matters, let me say that holiness is not a small matter. (laughs) An unholy person before the holy God is death and separation forever. It's why 70 men were struck down when they looked into the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel 6. God, he said, I am never going to compromise my holiness ever. And right there, all of them died. It's why Uzzah was struck down when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. He's trying to, it's getting a little wobbly on the the cart there not saying anything about the fact they weren't obeying God's word, but the fact that he's wobbling, getting ready to fall, and Uzzah goes, and he tries to steady it, and what does he do? He touches it for one moment, and God strikes him down. God's holiness is not a small matter. It's why we see here the people separate themselves from the surrounding peoples as well. When God is in the camp, you better be holy. (laughs) Yet incredibly, we can just take this as a side note, maybe not even as a side note, but just see this. It's not just the Israelites that are worshiping God here. Verse 21, it says that along with the Israelites, so also were everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. What was Israel to be? A light to the nations, incredibly here, among a joyful, holy people, the nations see this and the God of Israel, and they join in the worship of God. We see their being what they were supposed to be being in the first place. 
And so we see joyful worship and in true worship, holy worship. And this naturally leads us then to a last aspect of worship that we see here, sacrificial worship. In order to worship, blood must be spilt. Hence, we see the dedication of all these animals in verse 17. We see they slaughtered the Passover lamb in verse 20. And if you remember, what was it that they placed over the doors of the homes of the Israelites so that God's judgment wouldn't come upon them during the Exodus? Blood. And just think of that. If they had not put blood on their door, what would have happened to all of them? The wrath of God poured out. But with the blood of the Lamb over their doorposts, God spared them, which is right. So why is there such an emphasis on blood? Why so much sacrifice required in order for us to worship God? Because God is holy and we are not. Yet we know, right, that animals ultimately were insufficient. As Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So we see more is needed. More is needed to make us right with God to utterly and completely atone for our sin once and for all. And all of this points to that. It points to the need of a day when God would bring about His everlasting kingdom, when He would bring His incarnate temple, when He would bring about His Redemption. So what does all that have to do with me? Well, we were born into this world with a worship disorder. While we were made for God, we rebelled and ran from God. We've taken joy in the unholy. We've pursued counterfeit joys. We've pursued empty pursuits. We've loved the darkness. We've loved death. We've loved our sin rather than light, rather than life, and rather than God. So let me ask you honestly, be honest, not before me, but before God, this morning. Do you enjoy feeling shame? How many of you like that? None of us. Is the guilt you carry with you, has it even for one day brought you rest? The regret of things that you've said and you have done. Do those things still weigh on you this morning? Are you still looking to something else to satisfy your heart, your soul? You're looking to an addiction. That's all that is, is idolatry of the heart. Are you looking to lust and pornography and sex to satisfy you? 
you're looking to money, you're trying to create meaning out of nothing, are you angry? Are you displaying that? Are you hurting others? Or maybe are you even trying church and religious this morning, religion this morning, just in case? Yet, your shame and your guilt and your regret and your sin and burdens are still there. All of that in this chapter points us and calls us to stop looking to ourselves or the world or any other false hope, but to look to God, to look to the deliverer, to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to take on your shame and your guilt and your regret and your sin and your burdens upon himself. True worship, true joy, true life are only found in Christ. He came as the one who is our Passover lamb. That with his blood over you forever, your sin is atoned for. Your guilt is paid for. And God's wrath is satisfied. Friends, while many may have failed you or given up on you in this life, they are not Jesus. Jesus would not stop until he died, until he was buried, until he rose again to save sinners, to save you. Hear well that in Christ there is joy, there is holiness, and there is redemption forever. And He does not fail. In Him, sin has been paid for in full. The work is done and the Lord delivers and can deliver you this very morning. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, that means that you need Christ today. That you need to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're like, well, I don't know what that means. I don't know what to do. I don't even know who that really is. Then please come and talk with me after this service. Come and talk to the, someone who you came with. About Christ and the gospel. That you may be all in. Or if you're here and you know him, that means that you need to go and preach the gospel. You need to come and worship under this gospel of joy. You need to go and be about this gospel in all of life. You need to be all in saints. There was once a young high school student who sat in the back of a church. It wasn't even in a pew. It was like a chair sitting off to the side. And he was hearing something like all of these things. But he didn't care. He wasn't really listening to any of it. But he knew something was wrong. He felt the weight of this thing in him, this sin in him, this, whatever it was, this guilt. He didn't know. And yet there he was, unmoved, in none of his pursuits, as he walked out of the ch- church 
and he had nothing to do with God as he went out unmoved, that none of his pursuits, nothing in this world went on to save him. And so years later, what the world and that young man could not do, God did. And he's actually here today. He's preaching the word to you. And he's calling for you to look to the deliverer who can truly deliver you, not years later, but today. May you and may we look to the Lord today. In the Lord, there's deliverance. In the Lord, there's true worship. And in that deliverance and in that worship, may it be that today you and all of us would glory not in ourselves, but glory in all that the Lord has done. May you be able to look back and marvel at God and the work of God and all that the Lord has done. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this Lord's Day. We ask, Lord, as we ponder and think upon your word, that part of hearing the word is responding to the word that we will have left this morning incomplete and not having done as you have called us to do if we do not respond to your word. And so help us, Lord, in whatever way you're calling us to respond this morning, may we do it. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.